couple of years ago on a family vacation to Colorado, Kathy and I booked our flight out of San Antonio to Denver on uh, what I'll refer to as an ultra low cost airline. And I want to make the distinction, it's not the airline that loves bags where the bags fly free, but this was an ultra, ultra low cost airline. And so on the morning of our departure, you know, we arrived at the airport, took our bags up to the ticket counter, and uh, as the ticket agent was checking our bags, our two bags there, she informed us that that will be $40 per bag. And, and, and I looked at her and um, let me just say that as politely as I could, I, I, I questioned her about $40 per bag and said that, you know, most airlines where you're paying for their bags, they're only charging $30 per bag. With which the, she proceeded to tell me that, well, if you had checked in online and paid for your bag 20, before 24 hours before the flight, your bag would have been $30 a bag. And so, I just thought, okay, just hold your tongue, hold your tongue. And while I was holding my tongue, she looks down and she sees that we, got a, we have a carry-on bag. And she said, well, I, I need to let you know that when, if you take that carry-on bag to the gate, then at the gate, they're going to charge you $60 for the bag. <laughs> I went, for real? <laughs> a carry-on bag? <laughs> $60? So I just thought, okay, just swallow your pride, uh, pay, the, pay the $40, save 20 bucks, you know, okay. Only then she said, well, okay, now you're checking a second bag and your second bag now is $50 a bag. <laughs> I was just... <laughs> I know, I thought, okay, just your Christian witness, be salt, be light, you know. But anyway, but she, she could see as she was tagging our bags the frustration on my face. And with that, she, under her breath and looking to make sure no one else was hearing, she said, that's why I never fly this airline. <laughs> yeah. Lesson learned. Oh, and did I tell you that on the flight, you know, those skimpy snacks and the drinks? Yeah, they, they, they charge for that as well. So all in all, this ultra-low-cost airline had now become an ultra-low disappointment. <laughs> You know, none of us enjoys being surprised with disappointment, do we? Uh, we want to know the truth up front so that we can make informed and, and, and wise decisions. We don't want to be told one thing only to later find out that what we were told was wrong. Uh, we don't want to believe something only later to find out that what you believe is, is actually false. And being surprised uh, with disappointment, as I learned there at the airport that morning, is part and parcel of experiencing growing 
pains. Uh, The Christians in the first century churches in Galatia, uh, they experienced growing pains. Uh, Having been taught by the Apostle Paul that justification or their legal standing before God is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Uh, The Gentile Christians in this area were surprised with disappointment, needless to say, when they learned from the Judaizers that Paul's teaching was in error. These Jewish believers from uh, Jerusalem were spreading the false teaching throughout these Gentile churches that, yes, justification is by faith in Jesus Christ, but that they also must become a Jew first by submitting themselves to the covenant sign of circumcision. The teaching of the Judaizers was that justification by faith in Christ, but is also includes works of the law. And so it is that Paul sets out to correct this false teaching and to defend the gospel he had preached to them on previous missionary journeys. Hence, the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Listen to what Dr. Merrill Tenney, uh, Dr. Tenney, who was just a, a, a premier biblical scholar, as a matter of fact, he served on the original translation of the New American Standard Bible, uh, Many of us here today using that Bible, uh, myself included. Listen to what Dr. Tenney says about Paul's letter to the Galatians. The book of Galatians is one of the shorter epistles of Paul. Few books, however, have had more profound influence on the history of mankind than has the small tract, for such it could be called. Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect, and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. Galatians embodies the germinal teaching on Christian freedom, which separated Christianity from Judaism, and which launched it upward on a career of missionary conquest. It was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because its teaching of salvation by grace alone became the dominant theme of the preaching of the Reformers. Luther's commentary on Galatians was the reasoned manifesto of the revolt against the Roman ritual and hierarchy, which more than any other single document revived the knowledge of biblical truth in the minds of the people. It has been called the Magna Carta of spiritual emancipation, for on its principles is formed the whole faith of a free church. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that incredible what he is saying about Paul's letter to the Galatians and the fact that you and I have that same letter right here in our laps today. 
and that you and I have the privilege over these weeks to study this incredible letter, this letter that literally changed the world. It's Paul's defense of the gospel to the Galatians. The Magna Carta, as Dr. Tenney says, of spiritual emancipation. The Magna Carta of Christian liberty. The Magna Carta of the Christian faith itself. Greg Strand is uh, the EFCA Director of Theology and Credentialing. And he made the following statement concerning the gospel. He says, you don't add to the gospel without subtracting from the gospel. Let me say that again. You don't add to the gospel without subtracting from the gospel. You know, what he is saying here is that anything that you or I or these Judaizers add to the gospel, in fact, takes something away from the gospel. You make it another gospel, a different gospel, a gospel that Paul says in Galatians 1.7 is no gospel at all. In fact, any time that you or I try to assist God with our justification, our standing before him, or any time that you and I try to assist God with our salvation, you are in fact moving away from God. That's what Greg is saying here. That's what Dr. Tenney is saying here. That's what Paul is telling the churches of Galatia. And so what is the controversy of the Judaizers that Paul is confronting in this letter to the Galatians? Well, he's confronting their false teaching first because it strikes at the very heart of the gospel. Second of all, as we have already mentioned, it substitutes another gospel, which is no gospel. Thirdly, it totally misrepresents the grace of God and the freedoms that we enjoy in that grace. And fourthly, and I would say most importantly, it eliminates the cross of Jesus Christ. It totally negates the death, the work of Christ on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And I hope that you can appreciate the heinousness, the heresy of the teaching of these Judaizers. And fifthly, that this heretical teaching brings nothing but bondage. Dallas Theological Seminary professor Dr. Harold, uh, Dr. Robert Leitner, uh, one of my favorite profs. I, I love Dr. Leitner. As a matter of fact, after I'd had a class with him, 
I searched to find what other class can I take under Dr. Leitner. But Dr. Leitner, you know, on the first day of, of class and each of his classes, you know, as you typically do, is you go through the syllabus, right? You go through the syllabus of what the course is about, what you're going to be reading, what you're going to be studying, uh, what you're going to be writing, and what you're going to be writing some more, and what you're going to be reading some more, and <laughs> on and on and on. And um, one of the things that Dr. Leitner would do when he would get finished with the syllabus is that he would tell us this. He said, he would say, whenever you hear me say, this is a central passage, you need to write that down. Whenever you hear me say, students, this is a central passage, he would insist that we write it down because he said, I guarantee that on the final exam, you're going to see that central passage again. And the reason that Dr. Leitner did this was that so we would learn these central passages. That as you and I look throughout the scriptures and as we study the theology, the biblical theology of the scriptures, there are key verses that help us clearly understand whatever theological issue it is that we're looking at or studying. And so to understand the argument of Paul's defense in the gospel, of the gospel in Galatians is to understand the central passage or what I'll refer to as the key verse in the entire letter. And that key verse, I believe, is in Galatians 5.1. Are you writing this down? You're going to see this on the final exam. Where Paul says... It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That's a key verse. That's a central passage that helps us understand the argument that Paul is presenting here in his letter to the great Galatians in his justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so what is Paul's argument in Galatians? You know, as Paul so characteristically does in his letters, you just see this over and over again, is that he's like a, a really good defense attorney. And he clearly and just logically lays out his persuasive argument so that by the end of the letter, I mean, he's just got you eaten out of his hand. He's, he's so logical. He's so clear. And he's so right on. You know, we could divide this, this, this letter into three sections. Uh, the first section we would call Paul's personal section in chapters 1 and 2. Um, and it's in this section that Paul defends the gospel um, notice over in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, For I would have you known, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it 
through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, what he's saying there is, this isn't something I've just made up. You know, this just, this, this isn't a fable. This isn't something that I received, you know, secondhand from somebody or that, you know, it was a posting on Facebook. No, he says, I received this revelation directly from the Lord Jesus Christ which is an authentication of his apostleship to even write this letter. Second section, that we would call it his doctrinal section in chapters 3 and 4 where we find ourselves today. Uh, Listen to what he says. I just thought, what, what, what can I cut out of this? I can't cut anything out of this, these nine verses. Listen to what he says in chapter 3 and verse 1 through 9. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he quotes the Old Testament. Even so, Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. You know, people often ask the question that, you know, hey, before Jesus came, um, how was it that an Old Testament saint was justified? Well, we just read here. It says that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So the answer to that question is, how is an Old Testament saint saved? By faith. And so then we go over to Jesus has come. And how is it then that a New Testament is saved? It's by faith. It's by faith. And what is faith? Faith is believing. Faith is trusting. Faith is putting your hope, your one hope, in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. For your, for your legal standing before God. And let me add too that your faith is only as sure and only as strong as the object of your faith. Thirdly, and lastly, the practical section, verses chapters 5 through 6. And here it is where Paul defends freedom in Christ as we had read before in that central passage, that key verse, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You know, the Pauline epistles 
are letters uh, that address specific problems that were cropping up in the first century New Testament churches. And, and so to understand these letters, it's, it's important to know what is the specific problem or problems that the recipients of these letters are experiencing. And so as we approach any New Testament letter, you know, we should be asking ourselves, what is the problem? And not only what is the problem, but who is causing the problem? Who are the antagonists here? And thirdly, what is the corrective teaching for solving the problem? And this is how it is that we have our body of Christian biblical theology today. As these letters were shared and circulated among the first century New Testament churches, this is also how it is that we also have this body of Christian historical theology today. As the heresies of the day were confronted and addressed in the various councils that were convened in the early centuries of Christianity. And sad to say, the modern church today continues to drift from its historical, theological moorings as it ignores its biblical theology as hammered out in its historical theology. So what of Paul's argument in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7? Let's read together. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, as we look at Paul's argument here, and the flow of his argument, we first see in these first three verses that sons are not in subjection like slaves. And what Paul does here is that he is contrasting the position of believers both before Christ as to opposed to the position they now enjoy after he has come. And you know, it's the Old Testament that points to Israel's coming Messiah. It's in the New Testament where it reveals that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Israel's long-promised 
Messiah. But Paul is also showing here that in both first century Roman and Greek cultures, and Roger touched on this last week, uh, that in the Greek and Roman cultures of this first century, uh, the coming of age for a son was a point in time that would be determined by the father. I know, as I say that, I'm thinking my wife is still waiting for me to grow up. But, um, but until that time determined by the father, the son would in fact be as a slave under the authority of, and the terms that Paul uses here in both chapter 3 and chapter 4, of pedagogue or guardians or managers. But at a predetermined time set by the father, the son would no longer be as a slave, but would be declared as a son and an heir of the father. And so Paul is making the argument here that to be under the law is to be as a slave under bondage. In contrast to being under grace, where you are no longer as a slave, but to be as a son and an heir. And so Paul begs the question to these Galatians, why as a son and an heir would you ever want to put yourself back under the law as a slave? You know, while growing up in Dallas as a young boy, uh, one of the things that our family loved to do was we used to go out to this brand new amusement park that was built between Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, it was called Six Flags Over Texas. I mean, it was way out in the middle of nowhere, right off the Dallas-Fort Worth turnpike, but we loved going there. And one of my favorite rides at Six Flags was the, what was then Enco, now Exxon, Happy Motoring, uh, where I could actually drive a scaled-down car on a scaled-down highway as a, as a young elementary age kid, for real. <laughs> well, of course, on that roadway, there was a rail in the middle of the roadway that would keep my car on the road. And you know, it's interesting. Occasionally, I'll be driving down the freeway here in San Antonio or wherever, and, and, I, and I'll think about that. And I'll, and I'll just think about how great it is that as an adult, I don't have that rail going down the center of the road that, that keeps me, that, that I can go wherever I want. I'm free to drive wherever I want. And why would I ever want to go back to being restricted in my driving by that rail down the center of the road? And Paul's raising the same question to the Galatians. He said, why in the world would you ever want to put yourself under the bondage of the law when you can enjoy your freedom in Christ? You know, Paul goes on in his argument in verses 4 and 5. And here, God, he says that God sent his son 
to redeem slaves. And what Paul is saying here is that God has set men free. And if this was not so, all of us here today would be under the bondage of sin and there would be absolutely no hope for any one of us. But at the appointed time, God chose to make salvation available to us through Jesus Christ. And Paul's proposition is in two points. He says God sent his son in the fullness of time or at the right time. You know, at that time, uh, they were living under the Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome. Uh, the, the, the known civilized world was, was, was the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire was a, uh, a vast network of roads that would facilitate travel and commerce. Uh, it, throughout the Roman Empire, that there was, there was a common language that was spoken. And God sent forth his son at the right time that the world was ready to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and that that gospel would spread like a wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. But he is also saying here that God sent his son not only to the Jews who were under the law, but to the Gentiles who were subject to the various pagan religions so prevalent at that day in time. And the term redeem here means to buy out of slavery. And so it is that God sent forth his son, not only for redemption, but for adoption as sons, to become heirs of God. We, we move not only from the bondage of sin, but we move into the household of God as free peoples and as heirs of God. And these verses here, they speak of both the deity of Christ, God's son, as well as his humanity, born of a woman. And thirdly, in verse 6, Paul is saying that God sent his spirit also into our hearts. Not only has God sent his son to redeem us and that we might receive the adoption as sons, as heirs, both Jew and Gentile, but he has also sent us his spirit. And Paul's Trinitarian teaching here shows that justification by faith is the work of the complete triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that the Spirit is the gift, it's the gift of God to every believer, and that because you are a son of God and an heir. And it's interesting, I think, that he also says that it's the Spirit that cries out within us, Abba, Father, or Papa, Father, or Daddy, Father. It's a term of endearment. As a matter of fact, it's the same term 
that Jesus would use to address God the Father in his earthly ministry. Do you realize the privilege, the privilege that you and I have in our prayer to call upon God the Father, Papa, Daddy? And lastly, Paul says that we are no longer slaves, but that we are sons. And this is Paul's summary statement in this section of his argument, defending justification by faith. And in conclusion, he reaffirms what he has stated previously, that those who are justified by faith are sons and heirs through God. And I want you to note the use of the word sons and son in verses 6 and 7. He uses the plural sons in verse 6, but then he brings it down personally and uses son in the singular. In other words, what he is doing here is that he is talking to you. He's talking to me. And the question for all of us is, do you in fact know for sure by the testimony of God's spirit in your life and the change that that has brought about within you, do you in fact know that you are indeed a son of God and therefore an heir? Many would say that this is easy believism, that this is cheap grace, justification by faith alone, that it costs nothing. And dear friends, it costs the Son of God his very life, his suffering on your behalf and on my behalf. And the challenge for us is to recognize that justification by grace does not free us to sin, but it does free us from sin. And as we go to the Lord's table today, I want to direct your attention to a strategic issue concerning the letter to the Galatians. Over in Galatians 6 and in verse 14, where Paul says, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Friends, you and I have no reason whatsoever for boasting. Because you see, like we said before, if you and I think that we can add something to the gospel, we are in fact taking something away from it. But if any one of us is going to boast, let us boast in this that we know 
the true and the living God by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone and what he has accomplished for each one of us. I asked if the ushers would come and pass the elements as a reminder in the tray that in each slot there are two cups. The bottom cup has the bread, the top cup has the juice. Be sure that you take both cups and hold it, the elements, and we will take them together. We've been talking today about justification by faith in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The cry of the reformers, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christo. That's what we celebrate today. And in the night that Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, that he lifted the bread and he said, this is my body. In essence, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And as often as you eat this bread, you remember the Lord's death. Eat together. And in the same way, he took the cup and he lifted it up before his disciples. And he says, this is my blood. In essence, this represents my blood. And as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the new covenant in my blood. Drink together. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are so grateful for our Savior. And we are so grateful for the means of our salvation through grace. And we are so grateful, Father, for the channel of faith. And Father, we are so thankful for the Savior who accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And for that, Father, we praise you And we exalt the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.